All right, welcome back to the Joe Cozo Show. Today's show is sponsored by MyPillow.com, the great Mike Lindell. If you get a chance, go over to MyPillow.com, punch in promo code TJCS. Why would you do that? You get up to 66% off on all of their items. And right now, they're having a huge slipper sale, so... Make sure you go over to them. They have everything. It's not just pillows. They have blankets. They have sheets. We have the Giza sheets. They have dog beds. You name it. Again, MyPillow.com, promo code TJCS. And with that being said, today's guest, he's a former naval officer. He is currently an NYPD, NYPD detective. All right. And he's running for New York's 2nd Congressional District right here on Long Island. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Mike Rakebrand. All right. Welcome back to the Joe Cozo Show. We have lots to talk about. I got something going. I got something cooking here. This is the big leagues. It's New York. I said I was in the worst neighborhood, man. I said I had a near-death experience. Crazy? Robert, if you've been through what I've been through in the past month, you'd be, you'd be crazy too. All right, Mike Rakebrand, thank you for coming on the show. I thank really you. appreciate you being here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's, it's, listen, anyone that is running for Congress that wants <laughs> to change America for the better, for what you're, you know, and we'll get into it and everything. I mean, it'll be, it's a privilege to have you on here, but for the people that don't know who you are yet... Give us a little brief bio about yourself. I'm an active NYPD detective, uh, currently working in Brooklyn, Crown Heights. Uh, prior to NYPD, I was in the United States military, Navy. I was uh, assigned to a fast-tack submarine in Pearl Harbor for two years, and after that, I spent my time as a corpsman with the uh, Marine Corps. So how did you get into, when you say the military, what, what age were you with? 23. When 23, I went 23 years old. So what were you doing before that? Because a lot of times people, you know, I, I mean, I... I I wish I would have done the military, but if when any time that I thought about it, I always thought it was going to be right after high school. Right. So, and, you know, that usually is 18 years old. So from 18 to 23, what were you doing? Um, going to school part-time. I was working mostly, you know, just kind of... Odd really, jobs? Yeah, not really doing much. I mean, I was uh, kind of mostly menial jobs, not really too much. I was doing a lot of contracting work, stuff like that, and I enjoyed that. So I was kind of sticking with that for a while. And then what... what how did the idea, like, what what happened? How does it go from doing what you're saying, you're 21, 22, I don't know when you enlisted the exact age, but what made you say two parts? I'm going to get into the military, and if I'm going to get into the military, it's going to be the Navy over, say, the Marines, the Army, the Air Force. What You know, explain that to us. So prior to joining the military, I'd uh, actually taken a course here in New York to become an EMT. I always liked medicine. I always kind of felt like a drawn to that arena. So it kind of decided my fate, so to speak, in that. I knew I wanted to be like a medic of some kind. And I loved the Marine Corps. I thought they were just, uh, the, you know, the, the most motivated guys, the guys that were really going to get in there and get the work done. So for me, it was like, all right, I'd like to be a medic in the Marine Corps, but Marines don't have medics, right? They have a hospital corpsman that come from the Navy side. So I became a corpsman. And, and what... Did you have any, were you in a relationship? Were you married at the time? Were you single? Because that's, you know, that's a big decision to say, hey, listen, I'm going to go off into the military at this time. I was single at the time. I had been in a little bit long-term relationship prior to that, but uh, that had ended. And, you know, I'd always ever wanted to go in the military from the time I was very young. From when I was very young, I always just wanted to serve. In some way, I wanted to help people serve, do things like that. So. Where did you get, where did you get, you know, sent to going into the Navy? 
Uh, you go to Great Lakes, Illinois for boot camp, and after that to uh, Groton, Connecticut for submarine school. Then out to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii to bust rust on a submarine. <laughs> so wait a second. So you actually, obviously, yep. saying this, has been on a submarine. Yeah, yeah. It's been can two you, years on board. Can you explain the first time? So here you are. You're about to get it. You know, there's the submarine. Obviously, yep. it's above water. Yep. What was going through your mind like that? Because, you know, it's very few people that actually get to say, hey, I've been on a submarine. Can you explain that experience to us? It was um, it was honestly kind of surreal. My first day getting to the boat in Hawaii. Um, I Hawaii? In Hawaii. Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. <laughs> That's great. So I show up, you know, I go to go check into the boat, and uh, I walk up to the pier, and, and here's a, we call him chief of the boat, right? The senior enlisted on the boat, usually a master chief. So here's a master chief Brooks standing next to this boat, you know? And I walk up, and I forget exactly what I said, but whatever the hell I said, I pissed him off right off the bat, you know? So it all started off on the wrong foot already. You know, it was, um, it was you, if you haven't been, uh, had your butt chewed by a Master Chief, it's a, it's an epic experience. It'll give you Teflon booty after that. Nobody comes close. Nobody. Nobody. So, explain the whole experience of going into, you know, down into the submarine. What's that like? How big is it? Is there a lot of room to walk? Is it really tight? It's tight. Um, the, the ballistic missile subs, I think, are a little bit bigger as far as, like, lengthwise and wider, obviously, because they carry the missiles. But um, the fast attack boats are pretty tight. Um, the passageway, maybe, you could squeeze two people by if you had to. Um, they're pretty tight. So when you climb on board, you usually go into the forward hatch on the boat, and it's just an opening on the front of the boat. And you're climbing down a ladder down to the first deck right there. That's generally where you're going to find, like, the, um, the XO, CO, control room, all that stuff. And then down from there is like a next level down. That's where you're going to find like your mess decks, your, your bunk rooms, things like that. And then further down from that in the front of the boat, you'll have the torpedo room, the machinery room, things like that. Then you have a whole different compartment. So it's kind of split in half the boat. So you have a rear compartment. That's where like the reactor is and all the engine room and all that stuff is. How many, how many people can, be, you know, can you fit on a submarine like that? The average crew is about 120. It's a lot of people yeah. to have on just you know a submarine, and again, I, I really can't grasp the the it's, size. It's tight. It's very tight. It, it is tight. Oh, there we go. There's, oh yeah. There, there it is. Yeah, look at that. Is that something similar to? Yeah, very much. Um, I was on USS Cheyenne. That's the uh, last Los Angeles class boat that was built before they went to the Seawolf class, and now I think they're the Virginia class now. But, so. Uh, so did you actually have to, you know, did you have to do um, training out in the sea on the submarine? Yeah, and you have to qualify on the boat. So you get, we call it qualification. So when you get to the boat, they call you a nub, right? Non-useful body, because you're not qualified on the boat. You're not qualified submarine. So and qualifying submarines literally means learning every inch of that boat, every single valve, every single system, every single thing. So that if something goes wrong, you can assist in, in whatever it needs to be done. So if it's flooding or fire or whatever, you can actually help fight or help fix. I mean, to me, that sounds something that I would never want to do, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like appeal, appealing to me. And especially for you, you're saying that you liked being in EMT, and now here you are having to know every single piece of a submarine, yeah. right? That's that you have to, Every person that joins enlists in the Navy has to go through that training. It depends on where you land in the Navy, different job classes. Um, submarine community is very, very small. So how did you realize or who told you, hey, listen, uh, you're going to be in the submarine class? Because I got to tell you, if they said, hey, listen, you're going to be doing that, I'd be miserable doing that. <laughs> so it's a voluntary, all voluntary force. Um, when we were joining the Navy, I was actually joining with my, my uh, best friend at the time, uh, Leo, who's actually, I believe, still serving um, in Hawaii, actually, again. But uh, we had joined, and uh, he was looking to go into, like, the electronics field. Like, he liked electronics, things like that. So the recruiter was talking to him about electronics technician, which is one of the jobs. 
And then he mentioned uh, submarine duty. That you can go to submarine duty, whatever. They'll give you an extra bonus or whatever, this and that. What's so, the bonus, though? When you say extra bonus, what is that? It's like an extra cash payment they get upon Yeah, I know, but training. I'm saying, what would it be? Like, give me an example of... I think at that time, it was maybe about, like, five, six grand. It wasn't much. Okay. You well, it's still five, six grand. Yeah, I mean, now I think it's uh, much, much higher. And, like, depending on the job field you're in and how critical it is, you know, I've heard of people getting $60,000, $80,000, you know? For a bonus. Yeah, Yeah, because, you know, if you think about it, it's not something, again, I don't know who would just say, hey, listen, submarine is where it's at. Right. But... How explain to to us the first time that you're now actually going to go out to sea, and how long was that? Um, so we go out to sea actually quite a bit, right? Training and um, different exercises, things like that. Um, it was it was surreal, you know. So you you get on board, you know, you spend maybe I think I spent maybe a week on board the boat, the day to day working on the boat and everything before we actually went out to sea for the first time. And it was kind of a it was kind of a surreal experience because that was actually the first time I drove the submarine, so. You know, I had a guy who was more obviously more experienced, guy who were qualified, you know, and you have to qualify each watch station on the boat. So, like, helmsman, planesman. Helmsman's, like, direction. Planesman's, like, you know, the angle on the bow and depth. So, you know, you kind of, you're actually controlling this boat. You're taking a, you know, $4 billion-plus boat out, and uh, you're Four the one million. driving. You know, it's 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 a little uh, it's a little uh, nerve-wracking. And what? how deep would the submarine go out, go down? Um, they can go fairly deep. Um, I'm not sure what the actual... Uh, standard is now for what they're allowed to talk about as far as depth i know when i was there i think it was uh they said you, you can go past well past 600 feet and how long were you like what was the longest time that you were out to sea um we did a westpac deployment through asia through the asian area and all that through uh straits of malacca all that all over that area there and i think the longest time submerged we had during that deployment was about 89 days or 90 days how is that i i mean do you does it you go crazy i mean is it it's it's. Uh, I mean, you start saying, you know, you start getting cabin fever type, uh, you know. Sure, I mean, it's like it's like uh, Groundhog's Day, right? So you kind of just it's it's just very very it's <laughs> like the same day over and over again. So I mean, you're doing your watch stations, you're rolling through your watch, you're going through the rack, you're sleeping, and uh, we actually hot rack when you're new on the boat, so you're sharing a bunk with like two other guys probably, you know. So when you're getting out of bed, he's getting in bed, coming off his watch, you know. So it's kind of a little odd, but and when you're not qualified on the boat, so when you don't have your submarine dolphins, your warfare pin, you're not qualified. When you're not on watch, you're supposed to be working on your warfare pin. So you spend a lot of time in different parts of the boat, learning those systems or kind of memorizing different, you know, different systems. You have to actually be able to draw every system on the boat. What, what about like exercising? Because I feel like, you know, when you're there, if I'm for 89 days, people, I don't know if they can get fat. I don't know if they get out of shape. But is there something that you're doing now? You're in the military, obviously, of course. Yeah. Is there something that you're doing that you have, like, in the mornings, everybody has to get up or something? Because the, the quarters are tight. Yeah. Or is that something that you have to just do on your own if you can? There's no, like, set routine on the boat as far as when you work out or when you don't because the watch stations are kind of varied, obviously. So you, you kind of go on your own. The torpedo room had a lot of, um like, weight equipment down there that you could utilize. And so long as you weren't operating in an area where sound was an issue, you know, you could work out. Did you ever have any type of October, red October uh, experiences? Was there any time that, hey, listen, we might be in an emergency situation here or we might be, you know, there's some type of infiltration that might be happening. Somebody's coming too close. Did you ever experience anything like that? We had about once a year. Um, it was almost like an unofficial war game. So back then, about once a year, the Russians would send uh, a couple of Akula-class submarines right through the Hawaiian Islands. They would blow through, 
and it was like an obvious thing. They would blow through. Our guys would go out and give chase, and that was like, you know, the big thing, right? But nobody was shooting anybody else, obviously. Everybody knew what it was. So it's almost know? as if, okay, we know once yeah. a year or twice a year they're yeah. going to do this, and you guys are probably doing the same thing yeah, absolutely. in other places, and absolutely. it's more of a respect type thing. We're yep. training, you're training, and yep. there's nothing yep. happening. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, even like when uh, the Russian boat, the Kursk, went down in uh, the Bering Straits, Bering Sea. You know, the boat went down with all those guys on board, you know. I know a lot of guys that uh, actually went and, like, you know, did, did a, took a drink of vodka or did a shot of vodka to pay respect to them, you know. There's still, you know, we call, submarines are called bubbleheads. So those are still bubbleheads that went down with their boat, you know, and it's a it's a pretty awful way to go. I thought you were going to say humans. I thought you were going to say they're still human beings. They are still human so, beings, too. But, I mean, but, but you're saying there's also some type of camaraderie absolutely. of... I'm on a sub, you're on a sub, and yeah. we have that type of mutual respect. 100%. Yeah, yeah, I never even thought, I never would think that, to be it's honest. such a small community. It really is such a very small community. It makes it a little bit uh, almost like necessary to kind of think that way, I guess, in some sense. So what happens? How does it explain the feeling that when you're out then, right? So you come back. Yeah. Is it, is it like a, a whole different experience? Like, oh, thank God. Yeah, definitely. But are you counting down the days that you got to go back? Like oh man, this I got five more days or two more weeks, and and and, it, and are you dreading that? Um, maybe sometimes, like to a certain degree, you know. I mean, the Westpac deployments were great; they were a lot of fun. You know, you got to go see the world, right? You get to Malaysia or, or Korea or wherever else you're going to pull into, whatever port you're going to pull into and see. So I mean, you get you get an interesting, um, you know, viewpoint. You get to see the world. You get to see a lot of different things people wouldn't see. And with this monotony and this boring and stuff, you know, and sometimes you're operating in areas where you really have to be absolutely quiet. So. For a boat, they'll call it, like, you know, rigging for uh, ultra-quiet, you know, which means basically no noise, you know, at all. What was the one place that you weren't expecting to be beautiful and, and you absolutely fell in love with, but then when you got there, you actually did? Um, I was surprised by Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. You know, I, I guess I, I had a different idea in my mind about what it would be like, but it was an absolutely beautiful city, just amazing people, really, really, like, warm, nice people. But it's, I pretty much had a good experience everywhere I went. Did people, because they know that you're part of the military, you're, are, you, are you walking around in your, you know, in your uniform, or is it that you're walking in plain clothes? You're usually in plain clothes. I mean, they have, like, a, a kind of a, a standard dress that you have to have, you know, button-down shirt, a belt, all that stuff, shirt tucked in. You know, so there's still like kind of a military, I guess, a standard to the just civilian attire you're wearing, but it's civilian attire. So how long were you in the military altogether again? Just over nine years. So what made you, so let's now fast forward to that ninth year. What made you say, hey, listen, this is it for me. I'm done. I'm not going to be, you know, spend my whole entire life in as a military person. What made you make that decision to want to leave? I honestly had never planned on being in the military forever. It was never a thought that I would do a career in the military. I enjoyed the time, but I had never planned on actually making it a career. I'd actually planned on being a detective. That's really what I truly wanted to do. So when I was about, maybe about 10 or 11, I forget how old exactly, but uh, I was living in uh, Coney Allen on 36th Street, and uh, there was a woman murdered in the lobby of my building, Miss Gibbons, right? Nice lady, very sweet, um, always a very, very sweet woman. Her boyfriend stabbed her to death and started in the apartment and carried out into the lobby and stabbed her to death. And she died there in the lobby. While it was happening, she was screaming. My mother ran out the apartment because my father was a super in the building at the time. So we were right down the first floor. So my mother ran out of the apartment to go see what was going on. I ran out behind her, not even thinking. And here this woman is laying on the ground. You know, she had what would have been a white shirt on, but you couldn't even tell it was white other than maybe one small piece of the collar. And uh, my mother's holding her you know, kind of holding her up in her lap, and she's just kind of saying over and over again, my boyfriend, my husband, you know. But even at that age, I knew she was dying. Like, I could see clearly that she was dying. And it was uh, it was traumatic in some sense, you know. It was very, like, shocking, you know. It was not something you expect to see, especially at that age. 
But then after that, you know, here come the guys in suits, right? The cops come, and you feel like, okay, something's going to get taken care of. And then the guys in suits come, and it was it was almost, like, magical at that time. Like, these guys come in, and all of a sudden, it's like they're away from magic wand, and everything's back to normal again. You know, everything's kind of resolved and put back to right. So from that time on, I'd always ever wanted to be a detective. I felt like that was a great place to be. They're putting everything back to normal, but right. were you back to normal? Did you ever now go back into your room, or were you ever by yourself at a you know an adolescent age of that? Did that ever affect you in a way that you know you sit there and say, "Damn, I wish I never saw that," or did it affect you in a way that you said, "You know what? That made me who I am today. That helped me out to get to who I am." One hundred percent. That put me on on track to becoming exactly who I am. One hundred percent. Because it. For me, it had always, even from like the youngest age, I can always remember thinking, like, I always loved science, you know? I always loved the idea of helping people, you know? So when I was very young, I would think about being like a doctor or something in that vein, you know? But once that happened, it kind of it kind of honed everything down a bit. It kind of shifted my focus back to what I felt like I could do the most, the most good with, that I could do the most help with, you know, to stop people like that from doing things like that. To me, it was probably the, the most noble calling I could think of. What precinct did you start out at after you... Uh got out of the, the Navy or the military at the time. You were in the Marines, you said, after after the Navy? I was in the Navy, and then I went to work as a corpsman with the Marines. So Marines okay. fall into the Department of Navy, and uh, they don't have their own medical, and like their chaplains and stuff like that kind of come from the Navy side. Okay, so then what precinct did you uh, start out at? After the Academy, I went to uh, Brooklyn South IRT. So it was actually a task force building on uh, Coney Island Avenue by Prospect Park in Brooklyn. I started out there. And the idea was we were kind of like a mobile impact unit, you know, so there was like mobile foot posts. So they would move you wherever they needed you. The vast majority of the time in Brooklyn South, that was the 6-7 precinct, like East Flatbush and that whole area over there. Tell me the difference between, for the first time, putting on a military uniform and then in comparison to putting on your, you know, as a New York NYPD and you're out on the street for the first time. What's the difference between the two? It was um, it was kind of surprising to me actually. I expected it to be a completely different experience, and it really wasn't. It wasn't any. It wasn't that different. Like the overall, the overall experience was very um, very similar in a lot of ways. You know, overseas we're looking for the bad guy, right? We're looking for the guys looking to blow up innocent people or do just nefarious things. You know, the so-called enemy. You know, and here it's basically the same thing. You're looking for the guys looking to do you know nefarious things to other people. You know, what is the you know getting into the detectives here now? Now you're a detective after you get out of the academy. You're a patrol officer, I would assume right, at yes. first. Yep. Take the test to be a detective. Now you're a detective, right? That's what you have to. There's take the actually test? Uh, no test. It was um, promotion. Promotion. You kind of just work your way to to get your chance to do an interview for the squad or for a detective, whatever bureau, whatever you know. I guess uh, bureau you're trying to get into as far as detectives are concerned. There's so many different types. So for you know seeing how the the progression here as yeah. a child, you saw the death, right? Yeah. And you wanted you saw the people in the suits come and yep. being a detective, and here you are. Then now you finally become a detective. Yes. And you're doing the work. Was it everything that you thought it was going to be? It was. Um, it's satisfying in some sense. Yes, you feel like you're actually trying to you're actually really helping people. Um, by the time I actually made it to the squad, I'd already been in a cop for about six years, I guess, at that point. So I kind of had a pretty good understanding of what they did. But even with that basic understanding of what they did, I was still very surprised by how much actual work is involved in it. You know, So, I mean, you catch a homicide case, you're going to be there for three or four days minimum. At the scene? Uh, at, 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 at work. At work. Oh, so, so you're not... At the so scene, you... going back and talking to people, even like... Uh, Give me like the, the, mo- the, the worst case. And I mean, when I say the worst case, not the worst case of evidence-wise, like, oh man, I can't really do anything here. I mean, the worst situation that when you got to you, like, holy shit, what, what is going on here? What happened here? Oh, there's been many. 
Um, give me an example of something that you could maybe off the top of your head and give me that experience of you know getting onto the scene, seeing dead bodies, whatever it may be. It's um, it depends on the case. I mean, you know, we had um, we had a gentleman that was killed one time, and he was um in the past he had been like a you know he moving like midweight drugs at some point, made a lot of money, got out of the game, and bought buildings and stuff. And he was an older guy, and he liked girls, so he would hire these girls to come over and you know have sex and all that stuff. Two of these girls set him up. You know, and he decided they were going to get his money, get into his safe and get his money. So they, they go there, they, they tie him up like they're going to be kinky with him, and they end up torturing him to death. So the scene was extremely bloody. Um, it was extremely brutal murder. We ended up getting everybody involved, obviously. Uh, the Probably the most brutal aspect of it was during the autopsy when they're, they're, they're going over the cataloging all the injuries and stuff. They had bit him so hard on the shoulder that the bite went all the way through the muscle down into his shoulder bone, to the scapula. That when he, was, when they, I guess when he was whatever doing to them, they were struggling. Yeah, well, they were just torturing him to try and give him Oh, they were torturing him? Yeah, the, the, they were torturing this, this man. They were torturing... Okay, so what, what type of torture were they doing? So biting him all the way down and what Biting else? him, um, cutting him, burning him, you know, all kinds of... Uh, he had massive amounts of stab wounds, uh, massive amounts of, like, uh, superficial wounds, so... It, they were literally physically torturing him, you know, in any way they could to probably get a, basically get him to open the safe is what they were trying to do. How did you catch cash. them? How did they get caught? So they stole his car, and uh, they were in his car, and they got stopped out here and actually in Long Island. I forget where. But uh, they were stolen. They were caught in the car, and they got two of them caught in the car, brought them in. And through video and through physical evidence to the scene, they spoke with them. Those two confessed, gave up the names of the other two involved. And then those two were brought in, and they confessed as well. So, and the case was actually run by a retired detective. Now, I was an assist on that one, but he was the lead. But uh, Phil Thomas, great guy. Do you do bad cop, good cop type thing as being a detective, like what we see on TV? How does that work? It, you know, it, sometimes, sometimes, but it. Well, what are you though? Are you the guy? Uh, do you play both roles, or you do you like do, one? Pre you know, do you like one better than the other? We, I could do both. I mean, I have in the past done both, but um, I find that uh, in interviews, and I do usually do pretty well in interviews in the, with uh, purpose in the box, and um, I find with interviews, it, it honestly works a lot better, generally speaking, to just kind of go in and just be straightforward. You know, so normally when I will go in before I even Mirandize the guy, I'll tell the guy, "Listen, I'm going to read your Miranda." But before I do, I'm going to lay out my case. That way you know exactly where you are, you know exactly what's going on, and you know exactly what you're facing. You know, so that if you're making a decision, you're making an informed decision, and there's no question about anything. Because I feel like that transparency, that honesty is always best. And to be honest with you, most people respond much better to that than they do if I go in and try and like browbeat them into it or something. So here you are, you lay out the case, and it's basically, listen, I got you yeah. by hook or by crook, whatever, right. however you want to do it. So however we're going to play it after I Mirandize you yep. and tell, you know, and th then it's going to be on you here. Yeah. And that's how, that's basically how you do it. Yep. But do you ever do it like, you, you ever have to sit there and say that you and your partner or something say, listen, we're actually going to do, you're going to be the nice guy or I'm going to be this. It does happen. It does happen. It does happen. It, it does happen. Um, not maybe as much as people probably think, but it does happen. There are some like, some people respond better to those kinds of scenarios. Some people respond better to that kind of, I guess, interrogation, you know, but you just try and be careful with the interrogation. I mean, you know, it's, you don't want to get obviously a false confession. I've had that happen in, in, in the interviews before when people confessing to things they didn't do. 
I've had um as I told you I'm I'm a, I'm a criminal attorney so and I yeah. was a former ADA here out in Suffolk County so, oh, so I you know it's the yeah. worst yeah you know and especially if you're a DA you know an ADA and you get a false confession or you get some type of coercion it's, or whatever it may be right exactly it just blows up the whole case it makes it a total mess well, I mean it's, it's working against the system right I mean you, you don't want to put somebody in it and do it right that's the whole point is to get the guy who actually did it if we're not getting that guy then what's the point you know we're just you know it's the worst thing I could do as a detective would be to put the wrong person in have you ever had to use your weapon yes. Can you explain? Can you give any details on that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, November 2011, I was doing plainclothes and a crime duty. I was working with uh, my partner at the time, John Hoder. Uh, great guy. Best cop I ever worked with. And uh, we had a radio run come over for a commercial robbery. And uh, the central dispatcher came over and says, uh, well, the, the victim is on the phone and he's chasing the perp down the street. So we're like, what the hell? So we, we come, we turn onto the street, and it's literally like one block, the block directly behind the precinct I work at. So we, we come down the block, and uh, here's this guy on the phone, literally running down the street. So we grab him and throw him in the car, and he's like, oh, he's in the car right there. So now we pull up to the intersection right behind the precinct, and the car stopped at the red light like nothing was wrong. You know, the purpose are in there. So we said, okay, we're going to pull him over after the light changes on the next block. You know, we want to get him mid-block so he's got less chance to go anywhere. Okay. So light changes, he goes through. We come up behind him, we pull him over. A conditions car, another plainclothes unit, comes around the side of us and kind of pulls in front of him to try and block him in. As I'm getting out of the car, the passenger leans out and fires a shot at me and goes right past my face. I actually felt it go past my face. So now I start moving to my right to try and get a better shot angle on this car because I've got the conditions car in front of the car. I can't shoot and I want to hit those guys. So I'm trying to move to the right. My partner's turning our car kind of in between us and the, the perp's car so that I get some kind of cover. And uh, while this is all happening, the conditioned sergeant was getting out of the passenger side of the other car in front of the perp car. While he's getting out, the perps took off in the car and aimed for him. He actually took the door off that car trying to hit him. He managed to get back in the car just in time. So he he jumps into the car. Jumps into the car. Jesus Christ. They just barely, I mean, just barely missed him. And uh, they take off to end up crashing at the... Uh, the corner or i'm sorry first they uh first they take off they hit him they try and hit him they go about maybe two car lengths in front of him then the car stops you know a couple more shots from them at that point i fired two rounds into the car through the so back. are you so you're are you driving following them now i'm on foot you're I on, chased foot, on foot and you got your you got your, your gun out and now out. you're firing at them right they, they stopped the car about two lengths after they tried to hit him they stopped about two car lengths in front of him they stopped the car i hear an additional shot so now they're shooting back again. So I, I fired two rounds through the back window of the car. Did you hit the back window? Yeah, I hit Shattered? the back of the car. Yeah, hit the back of the car. The car takes off again. They end up crashing on the corner at like Brooklyn and, and uh, Montgomery. And uh, the, the driver and the passenger bail out. Now the driver, I didn't go after because I didn't know if he had a gun or not or whatever. I just knew the passenger had the gun because he shot. All right? So I see the passenger. I lock in on him. I start chasing him up. Which is crazy, by the way, because to be honest with you, right there, you really, I, I got to tell you, I mean, uh, I commend you for it because you could easily now, you know, you know that that guy's got the gun. Yeah. The other guy, it's still 50-50, right. so you could have a better chance of surviving, to be honest with you, if you chase the driver. And nobody would say anything. Absolutely. Right? Because, you, you know, you're justified going either way, left or right with sure. the guys. So, was that just a split second that you were like... No, I'm going after the guy with the gun? 100%. I'm always going to go after the guy with the gun. That's the guy that's going to hurt somebody innocent. That's the guy I'm there to get. Right? Tells you a lot about your character, to be honest with you, you know, and, and who you are. Because a lot of people would take the opposite route and say, hey, I'm not... 
let that guy's gone. He's got a gun, and I'm not risking my life doing that. But here you are, you doing it. So go ahead, tell us about the the chase. So he jumps out of the car. You know, I'm I'm going over the radio, putting his description over which direction I'm running, where I'm going, and uh, it's funny because uh, I didn't realize I still had the mic keyed. As I get up to Brooklyn and Crown, one block up, he turns with the gun. I told him, drop it, don't do it, don't do it. He turns. As he turns, I fired one more shot at him. He kind of ducked down, and uh, I'm pretty sure, I I believe I grazed him, but I'm not 100% sure. He went and crawled underneath of a van to try and hide. He goes around the corner and tries to crawl underneath a van to hide. So I come around the corner. I'm covering the van. Uh, All these uniform units are coming now because we put over a 1013, right? Shots fired. So everybody in neighborhood is coming. It's like a blue wave, right? It just crushes everything. Everybody shows up. We end up getting this guy out from under the van and everything. He's fighting with the patrol cops and stuff and everything. It was just a big melee out there. And in the, in the, I guess the chaos of all this happening right there, the driver was actually able to get into a, a livery cab a couple blocks up. He took off his sweater. He got in a livery cab a couple blocks up, and he disappears in the wind. You know, he just disappears in the wind. But uh, from the video, what we see on the video, and from the sweater we recovered at the scene where he left, you know, we know he was hit. I know we hit. I hit him. You know, I definitely shot him. I don't know how badly we hit him. I'm not sure exactly how he never found injuries. him. Never found him. Wow. Never found him. And the guy we got. So we get it. It gets a little funny at the end. We get the guy out from under the van. We got him. We got the gun out of the car. You know, there was a second gun we never recovered. Then uh, there's a guy in the back of the car that my partner ends up cuffing up. The poor guy in the back of the car was dead asleep when all this starts. Has no idea what the hell happened. Has no idea these guys robbed a store. Has no idea they shot it out with the cops. You know, and his interview in the squad was hysterical, you know, and, and grand jury was the same with the guy. He was a great, he was actually a really nice guy. He's like, bro, I don't know what happened. I smoked some weed. I got drunk. We were all hanging out. He's like, next thing I know, we're flying. They're shooting. Cops are shooting. They're shooting. I don't know what the hell's happening. <laughs> and the guy got so worked up in grand jury, he started crying. I felt so bad for him. I was like, you, but you never said, hey, listen, man, we'll cut you a good deal or something like that. Maybe the ADA, if you give up, give they, up your friend. They took care of him. Yeah, they took care of him. He was always okay. a witness. We never really charged him. I mean, initially that night, I think they charged him out just to have something on him to hold yeah. him, I think. But um. Uh, it never went anywhere. He never got charged. The other one actually ended up pleading out eventually to, okay. the, to the case, and um, he found out uh, through like during trial and stuff like that. He ended up, um, you know, being HIV positive and in full blown AIDS, and he passed away in prison. Jeez. So, you know, that was something else too. You always have to be careful for right when you're dealing yeah. with these junkies well, yeah. because they got maybe they have HIV, they have some type of TB, yeah. hepatitis, you name it, the full gamut. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you don't know when you're frisking them if they're going to have a needle or anything like that. You, people don't realize that type of stuff. Absolutely, there's a lot that goes on. I mean, there's there's just so many things that can go wrong. I mean, if you look at what just happened with um, you know, Moira and Rivera just got killed in a three-two. You know, there's uh, any cop. I mean, any cop will tell you. You know, they can 100% see themselves there. I don't know how many times I've gone to domestic disputes of all kinds. You know what I mean? And, and you walk in, and you're walking down a long hallway, or you're walking up into. You know, you just don't know. Who was the mayor when you were when you were there? Or were the mayors? Let's see. Um, I came on 2007, so I think we had Bloomberg, and then after Bloomberg, De Blasio. What What's the difference between the two? The department was way more um, way more respected, I think, under Bloomberg, right? So I think when de Blasio came in, it, it definitely became more of a, you know, this, you know, war on cops kind of thing really kicked off. You know, at that time, we had President Obama, who was, you know, saying a lot of nefarious things about it. You had national media was making everything that ever happened with a cop, you know, to be the worst possible thing ever. You know, I actually read recently that there was a poll that, like, a lot of people, a lot of people on the left actually believe that cops are killing thousands of unarmed black men every year, which is ridiculous and stupid, but 
it's out there because that's what they pushed on it. And de Blasio was 100% at the front leading that charge, you know. The day Ramos and Lou got executed in uh, the 7-9, you know, they were sitting in their car eating lunch, and a guy comes up behind them and blows their heads off. You know, I was working that day. I was actually out with uh, another detective. We were doing canvases for video for a different case. The 1013 comes over. We were not that far. We start heading that direction. By the time we got there, they had already been taken out of the car and removed to the hospital. You know, but the car was still there. The turret light was still on. The blood was everywhere. You know, it was probably one of the most surreal scenes I ever went to as a cop. Because you know? you're sitting there saying that could be me. And you have how, you have children, correct? Yes, four. Four children, four. wife. And yep. you're sitting there saying to yourself, this could have been me. And for me right now, the, the rhetoric, I think, is so demoralizing to police officers. Because if I was a cop now, there's a few things that would be going on. A, I don't want to arrest anyone because yeah. everybody's got these now cell phones. They're videotaping. They could easily, you know, manipulate the whole entire arrest or Absolutely. whatever, right? Absolutely. And then you know also with De Blasio that the people that are above that should have your back don't have your back. Hundred percent. And 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 that's why. And then now with the cash bail, yeah, there's it's just a mess. You yep. know that you're going to arrest someone, and then you may have to see that same person on the same block in two or three hours absolutely. doing the exact same thing absolutely yeah they're right back out again yeah everybody's right back out again um you know you have guys doing carjackings guys doing like gunpoint armed robberies and stuff and they're going in and coming right back out again you know and then they're going right back to doing the same things how's the attitude of the criminals now in comparison to what it was when you first were doing it to now when they know like do, they're I, I very can... much empowered right so they, they have all the cards they hold all the cards they know it they know it they're very much empowered that's why i think we're seeing so many we have five guys shot in like four days in the city, you know, five cops. You know, it, criminals are very much empowered right now because they, they feel like they can actually get away with whatever they're doing because they're actually getting away with it consistently and continuously. How was it during the whole George Floyd thing? You know, when that was happening in 2020, coupled with you had COVID, so now cops don't really, you know, they're... They don't want to really get too close to people to begin right. with, even with that. But yet, you also don't want to get too close because you know that these criminals are actually baiting you into trying yes. to do something. Yep. So you have that coupled with each other. Tell me how it was being a cop then and in all of the riots that are going on in New York City. There was a ton of riots. There was a ton of stuff going on. Um, it was it was very hard. It was a very hard environment because you, you're walking like a razor's edge, right? You're trying to do your job. You're trying to keep some sense of order. But at the same time, you're being told by, you know, the mayor's office is putting down to the chain of command that, you know, you're not to do this, you're not to do that. We're not going to use any kind of riot control tactic. We're not going to go out and actually round these people up or, or push them out with, the, you know, fences or whatever, you know. So you're trying to kind of maintain that order, but at the same time, you still have to protect yourself and your partner. You still have to protect the people you're with. You still have to protect innocent people. So it's like this tightrope that you're trying to walk, and you, and then you got people pushing you on all sides. I don't know if you saw this clip. It was one of the most disrespectful things I've seen in quite some time. It was these, uh, I think they were out in Harlem, and you had these criminals just taking water bottles and throwing yeah, the buckets, them, yeah, the buckets yeah, yeah, on yeah. police officers. Yep. You know, it was one of the most demoralizing, disrespectful things that I've ever seen. And, mm-hmm. you know... These you you as a cop cops you, that you want you want law and order yeah. for them to be able to go out and do that and then it's all over the TV and yep. just what it does is it just gives the other criminals an incentive to go out and say hey listen we could actually get away m- with murder absolutely I mean look it's a it's you know those tactics are used overseas in Iraq you would you know marketplace or whatever someplace where you have like large gatherings of people you know you might have like a organic protest or something going on. And all of a sudden, what you'll have is like, you know, kids or whatever, people throwing rocks. And it'll be like one rock, two rock, three rock, four rock, and now here comes a hand grenade, right? 
And that was like the tactic they would use because you'd get so used to them throwing rocks, you weren't thinking about what they were throwing enough to get a hand grenade in, boom, they got you. So, I mean, that's a, a real tactic that was used a lot overseas against us. And the water bucket thing, to me, when that happened, that's exactly what I went to in my head. I was like, okay, this is just another tactic that's going to kind of disarm us in a sense, you know. Oh, they're just throwing water. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. But it is a big deal, you know. It's, A, disrespecting the, the uniform and, and honestly, the what that uniform represents, right, the law, the order, the peace, the security, it's, you know, it's minimizing our ability to actually have that kind of respect that we need to be able to do our jobs. What's the inner conversations that's going on within the precinct, which it, within, you know, you and your and your partners? Right now, most people are just kind of like, you know, they're, they're kind of standing back. They're not really going to go, you know, it's, there's no proactive policing anymore at all, right? You really don't see it. Guys are not going to go out and put themselves on the line because what's the point, right? You're going to go out and bust your ass to make a, a collar for, say, a gun. A guy out there looking to shoot somebody, right? You got the guy. Good job. Now you save somebody from getting shot. But then at the end of the day, what's going to happen? They're going to look for any reason they can find to go after you rather than the, the perp actually carrying the gun. And you're sitting there saying, I have a pension that I have to look out for. I have a family. This is my job. Right. Is it really worth? And now, right, now exactly. you're thinking all those things, and that's not what a cop, that's now not you're at your best because now you're in your head. Yep. Now you're overthinking things. Imagine if you're overthinking things while you were chasing that perp that was shooting at you. That's the last thing you want to be doing. Absolutely, because it'll get you dead. Yeah, it'll get you dead. Absolutely. What about Eric Adams now? What's the morale? What's the, you know, are you guys sitting there saying, hey, this is a former cop. Now we're in it? Because I think, in my own personal opinion, I, I think this guy could be just as bad as de Blasio. I don't know. I mean, we'll give him a chance here, but... Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think guys are kind of cautiously optimistic. You know, they're they're kind of. It's a good way of putting it. <clears throat> you know, they're, they're hopeful, right? We're hopeful that it'll actually be, maybe a return to some sense of actual law and order. But then again, you listen to the things he said while he was campaigning and everything, and it's like, okay, well, how much did he say of that just to kind of campaign, and how much of it was it actually what he meant? So that's, that's because kind of the, that's the politics of it, right? And, and that's where. Uh, and speaking of that. Yep. And it's a perfect segue to get right into where, you know, why you are here. So here yep. you are, Navy, family man, <clears throat> you know, police officer, detective. You're living out in Queens at the time, right? You're was, living out in the city at the time when you first were, when you were first in... When I first came out of the military, I was living in Brooklyn. Um, and then after that, I moved to, moved in with my then my girlfriend, now wife, in Queens. And then we moved out to Holbrook here on the island. Okay. So now you're here, you're out on the island. Yep. What made you then sit there and say, hey, listen, I've done these other two careers. I have now a new passion and I want to get into Congress. I want to get into, you know, being into politics. What made you want to do that? I was always into politics since I was little. Just, um, I remember seeing a, a speech by Reagan, by President Reagan at one point when I was younger and I was just mesmerized. You know, it was just he was just a brilliantly spoken and, and written speech and it was always very... I found it amazing, and that kind of is where I guess my segue back when I was little into politics, where I was kind of followed and tried to kind of be involved in some sense, or at least paying attention. Um, never had any desire to be in politics, run for office or any of that. Never really thought I'd ever find myself here. Um, I was active on social media, you know, talking with friends or whatever about different policies, different, you know, politics and stuff, and... So I had a lot of guys from like the oh, you get into the rabbit hole there. Oh, oh you can get in oh, there. It's, it's, uh, you know, you know, the, thing, the thing is what's crazy about that. And I don't mean to cut you off there, no, but no. I just want to because a lot of times you don't know if the person's even real. Like, That's, you know, if you're on Twitter or whatever and you sit so there and say bots. to yourself, you're like, wait a second. Could a person really think this? And, and I'm going to give you an example. So the other day, Nancy Pelosi comes out and says that she wants to now, re, you know, um, 
run again, right? She's not retiring, 80-something years old. And I believe it was like from the New York Times, whatever, it was a on Twitter, or whatever it may be. And then I said, let me look at the comments here, because the comments, there was like thousands of comments. And I'm thinking, they're gonna be, she needs to retire, this old hag, this, that, whatever it was, you know, no way, we gotta have term limits. And then I saw one after the other that they actually love this person. They love Nancy Pelosi. She's a great job. Thank God we have intelligence in the house. Someone that's going to be a leader. And then you realize how divided oh, and yeah. how the divided the division of the way people think actually is. It, you know, it, and you look on there and there are some of them are the real people they have there. You know, some of them they are verified, some of them you see how they have a lot of followers and you look mm-hmm. on what they're doing. And again, you get down this rabbit hole of social media and it's it's unbelievable. unbelievable. Yep. It really is. But God, so so here you are, you you're on social media, you're going back and forth. I'm talking to my friends and stuff and like most of the talking I did wasn't even on social media so much as like just like guys in the veterans community out here on Long Island that I knew real well or from the city that I knew real well. So for the last couple of years, a lot of these guys, especially out here on the island, the veterans community, older guys, um, Vietnam vets, guys of that era, were kind of pushing me towards politics. You know, they were like, you should think about running at some point. You should but think why? about getting in. But why would they think, uh, you know, here you are, why wouldn't somebody say it about somebody else? Well, what makes you the guy that they think that that, that should I, happen? I think just probably because of the way I spoke about it, or I guess how, how I kind of approached it. And then um, the, the fact that I feel like integrity is probably the most important thing that, that's needed in politics today is honestly integrity. You know, and it's just none of it. It seems like none of it there. You know, it's all about whatever they're pushing for either this lobbyist or that lobbyist or the, you know, communist China or Russia, whatever. It's, you know, it's like there's, there's nobody who's actually advocating for the American people, like American families. You know, like that's kind of what you're there to do, you know. But uh, what would be the turning point for you, though? What happened in, let's say, in America in general? Forget about even just maybe local politics. Right. But what would be the turning point for you that said, you know what? The only way that maybe, I, you know, I could sit here and complain all I want on social media. Right. I can complain all I want to my wife, to my fa- my friends, at the Veterans Committee, whatever it may be. Yep. What was that moment that you said, you know what, enough is enough. What I just saw here or what's happening now, I, the only way that's going to be changed if I enter into the political arena and I make the changes myself. That was... um. Honestly, it was the infrastructure bill. That was uh, that was what really was the, the the kind of the breaking point for me. You know, uh, Andrew Garbarino had you know had a kind of a mixed record before that. You know, he voted for the red flag laws, which is a complete disgrace. Well, hold on. Let's just so people that understand. You said Andrew Gar- uh, Garbarino. Yeah, that is the person. He's a Republican, right? Okay, um, that's the person that you're trying to unseat, right? Yes. In come November. Yes. Okay, for the second district here yes. in New York. Yes. So. Go ahead, continue. I just just so for people understand exactly who yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, I mean he had um, you know, he, he had just a mixed bag. I mean he had he, about thirty percent of the time he's been voting with Biden and the progressives' agendas, you know, and it's always on bills that are like ridiculous amounts of money being spent, you know. So it, it just to me was it just it was enough, you know. It's like all right, this has to stop, you know. It's bad enough having to fight against you know a tyrannical kind of push from the other side. It's even worse when you have people who are supposed to be your allies on your side actually voting with them and, and allowing them to push through even more tyrannical, you know, policies. You know, the, the infrastructure bill has nothing to do with infrastructure. You know, it's everything to do with all kinds of just tyrannical push. So, you know, mandatory breathalyzers in everybody's cars or, you know, the government getting a kill switch in your car so they can stop your car anytime they feel like it. You know, things of that nature. It's like, you know, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely insane. 
You know, we've gone way, way off the rails now. So those are some of the things that we're so we're talking about because there's two infrastructure bills basically, right? There's one that they passed, right? And you had the Republicans agree to, and then there's one that they're still trying to pass, the bigger one, right? They're right? still trying to pass. So wouldn't some people though say, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, wouldn't some people say, well, the Republicans joined into in a, in a bipartisan way for the first original infrastructure, so we could then say, hey. Now we got we gave you A, but now we're not going to give you B. So almost cutting it in half. Is that something that you agree with, or is it something that you still think that we shouldn't have done to begin with at all? I don't think we should have done it to begin with. I think uh, them using the, they had so many ways they could have fought back, so many ways they could have actually you know kind of stemmed the tide of all this ridiculous things that are going on. But in um, which way though? Explain how you the think debt that. ceiling was a was a was a key way. They could have used the debt <laughs> ceiling to force negotiation at a much higher level. This infrastructure bill, 13 Republicans voted for it. That's it. But that was enough for the Democrats to push it through the House. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like a, a true bipartisan bill where the party was saying, okay, yeah, we're going to support this bill. It was individual rhinos that decided that they felt like, for whatever reason, that bill made sense to them. You know? And it just, it, to me, it was a complete disgrace. It was just a ridiculous thing to do. I mean, you already had inflation soaring, and now we're going to add fuel to the fire with this bill. That's going to bring about a 12% methane tax. You know, everybody's like, oh, what's methane, right? Okay, but your fuel oil is now going to go up by about that amount. You know, you cost every month. It's just going to add a lot of burden to American taxpayers that should not be there. And plus with the inflation. Exactly. I mean, you're just printing money after money after exactly. money. Exactly. And, and just printing money like it's uh, like it's never going to go away, like it's water. Yeah, you know? no, I understand that. So so here, so the infrastructure bill, yeah. right? Now, did you have a you know a, a conversation with your wife and said, hey, listen, this is yep. enough is enough here? Ta tell us about that because, you know, getting into politics, it's it's a whole other animal. You Absolutely. open yourself up. People Absolutely. now, have, you know, to attacks. 100%. People having their opinions. 100%. You opening up into the public. So it was, um, it was, it was an interesting conversation. She's like way more vocal. Um, so she kind of, I think, would like. She doesn't mind going on social media and actually fighting with somebody from the other side about a policy or whatever. She's very vocal. I tend to lean more towards like debate. Right? I like honest, you know, like actual real conversation or debate. I feel like that's the more appropriate way. But she's very vocal. She's very into politics. Um, so she kind of knew they had been pushing me for a while, you know, and I told those guys, listen, when I retire, maybe I'll look at doing it. You know, we'll see you then. We'll talk about it then. So she kind of already had an idea. It was somewhere in the background that it was a possibility down the road. But uh, at the time that this infrastructure bill happened that night, I spoke with her about it. We spoke throughout the day, obviously, talking about the infrastructure bill, how bad it was. And then that night we spoke, and uh, she was actually, you know, saying, like, you know, you should really look at, you know, doing this. So... We discussed it. We decided that night that we were going to go forward and, and try and get into the primary and actually primary this guy out, or at the very least, you know, bring attention to the guy, bring attention to what he's doing, bring attention to the fact that these people are working against, you know, the interests of everybody, honestly. Well, can you explain what he's doing and, and the person that you're trying to unseat, and that's yep. Andrew Garbino, right? Garbino. Garbino. Yep. In comparison to what you would bring, why would somebody sit there and say, hey, listen, you know, I don't like, or maybe I do like, but here's who we have now. We need new, fresh blood, yep. okay, and you would be the guy. Why would they want to vote for you? What are you bringing to the table? Integrity, right? I'm not going to sign on to a bill that's over 5,800 pages and I haven't read. You know what I mean? 
You know, it's it's amazing to me that we even have bills this big passing the House or the Senate at all. You know, we should not have bills of this nature. It was never intended to be that way. But yet you have these bills that, you know, like with uh, Obamacare, the famous quote from Nancy Pelosi, right? Well, we have to pass it to know what's in it. Really? When did that happen? You know, when did we stop being allowed to actually know what our government is doing? You know, when did that become an issue? When did that kind of go away? So integrity, honestly, very much integrity. I will not lie. I will not play games. I will not make anything about other than helping people, period. That's it. You said that you, you know, it seems to me that you're saying that the, re- the Republican Party here on Long Island doesn't want to get rid of him or have him on right. So explain that process there. Here you are. You know that. But yet you're still doing it. How do you then get into it? How do you primary him? How does that all happen? So for people that don't know right. the politics of that or even the policies of the way about doing it, right. how do you go about doing that so you have a chance to unseat him? So you have to qualify for it. So basically there's a, you know, there becomes like a window. And New York State Board of Election Law, it basically comes down to, it's like a 30 or so, 37-day window prior to a turn-in date. So I believe the turn-in date is something like April 4th to April 7th, for instance. So you'd have like 30 to 37 days before that to go out and actually canvas and get signatures from the party. So they have to be registered Republicans that live in a district. They sign on to a petition that you, you know, you circulate the petition around, you go out and get these signatures. How many signatures do you need? It depends. It changes somewhat, but uh, average would be about 1,200 or so signatures. So you you gather those signatures and you submit that to the Board of Elections and that kind of gives you you know, with enough signatures, you're petitioning to enter the ballot. You know, at that point, you get the signatures you need, you turn it in, okay, now you're on the ballot. So now there's a primary, you know, so now it's an official primary and, you know, they don't, it's not decided by any party chair or anybody like that. It's decided by the voters, you know, it's just a means to allow for voters to decide they want somebody primary, do they want somebody in, you know. If you had to debate him, yes, right, what would be some of the things that you would be eager to debate him on some of the topics that you feel that needs to be discussed and that you have a better edge over him on um honestly he's a uh, you know environment you know i think he's uh very much leaning towards the uh the left's uh, whole climate change thing which i think he would lose that pretty quickly um also honestly the, probably the biggest question i would have for him would be why sign on to a bill you haven't read you know he's an attorney right same as you I spent a lot of time dealing with the law, you know, and I can tell you, I don't know a single lawyer anywhere that would sign anything they haven't read. So it amazes me that that was the case, you know, and it it opens up two questions at that point for me is, one is either you didn't know what was in it and you signed on anyway because of whatever they supposedly were giving you, or you knew it was in it and you signed on anyway because of whatever they're giving you. Either way, it doesn't What do you mean whatever they're giving you? What do you mean by that? Whatever give back he got. I mean, I think he said his, his reasoning for it was he got some money for some roads, something like that. Okay, you got money for roads. That's great. Roads need repair. That does definitely happens. But I don't see how signing on to that particular bill was any different than attaching, say, that money for those roads to any other bill that wasn't of this nature or that wasn't this big or just this just terrible, you know? So if you're, if you're representing yourself as a Republican, conservative Republican, you know, why are we then going and, and voting 30, 33% of the time with the left on these extreme policies, you know? It just, it, it amazes me. So I think that immigration and, uh, you know, honestly. Immigration, though. So what's his, what is your stance on immigration in comparison to, and I don't know his stance on it. Do you know what, what, what his policies are on immigration? Uh, he speaks about securing the southern border. You know, he makes the case for securing the southern border and everything like that. Same, and most Republicans do. 
but then he votes on bills that you know fund illegal aliens and fund all these people being brought in and fund all this it's like all right you can't have both big guy you know you got to kind of make a choice here and take a stand so how would, what would be your policy on immigration if you were if you were you had the pen right and you're going to write the legislation on immigration here what yep. would it be and what would be different we would seal that border and shut down the southern border you know we have a big open gaping hole in our southern border and it's not just about keeping out people looking for work or things of that nature i know the left likes to make it about oh we're just trying to exclude people whatever based on skin color or whatever the nonsense they push that's just not true it's not about not letting people in or not letting people work it's about keeping out all those nefarious elements of the world i mean right now you have probably i don't know how many dozens of you know terrorist organizations in the world right now that 100 percent have the ability and the funding to get people in through that border into our cities to set sleeper cells you know so in all honesty with the border being open this long with this just waves and waves of people coming through i would be very surprised if we don't see some kind of attack from within very soon in the future in the next year or so and you're not just talking about because you know when, when a lot of people talk about the border you know they're thinking some type of say south american country or south american immigrants that are coming in right, but exactly. what we're really seeing though is it's much more than that oh yeah it's people all over the world that are coming through the southern border 100 and sneaking into this country and it's it's funny too actually i shouldn't say it's funny it's actually sad because here we are trying to get into almost a war with russia who's a nuclear threat and we're talking about a border there and we want to send troops to the border there but yet we have no troops at the border here so it's i mean the ukraine right it's um you know there's absolutely no reason for us whatsoever to go to war in ukraine right there's no reason whatsoever can we support them as an ally can we do things to kind of help mitigate that absolutely 100 percent would Russia be willing to talk and do things with talks? Absolutely, they would. They have no reason not to. They'd lose. They have as much economic interest in the conversation as we do. But here you have the Biden administration, whose polling and approval numbers are completely in the basement. You know, they're they're lower than I think any I've ever heard before anywhere. You know, so now they're doing a saber rattling dance with the Russian war machine to try and you know what bolster their numbers or seem strong on the world stage. They're, but they're ridiculous, you know, and, and everybody sees through it. We have you know other nations have opened up talks with Russia to kind of diffuse the situation, and they excluded us because our administration is such a joke. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, they don't have no... You're starting to see, and for the first time in my lifetime, the disrespect from other countries and how 100%. they view America. And 100%. I have to tell you, it's one of the most embarrassing things, and it's one 100%. of the things, you know, I love this country more than anything. It's my, you know, I loved it growing up. Mm -hmm. I was a history buff right from, you know, elementary school. Same. I loved everything about it. I liked how we came from nothing, yep. fought. You have these people that sacrificed their lives. 100%. To where we are now. Right. And it's it's it really is the disgrace. You know, and it's also a disgrace too when you were talking about, you said about the border and it's about skin color, but yet, yesterday, we hear that a Supreme Justice is going, you know, vacancy is going to be open, and it's all about skin color. Uh, everything with the left is about skin color, right? So they, they're constantly maligning us, calling us Nazis, calling us racist, calling us all these things, right? But yet they're the only people pushing this hateful, divisive, you know, curriculum in schools with critical race theory, SEL, whatever they want to call it, to keep breaking it up and calling it different things to try and hide it. You know, they're the ones pushing all these, like, you know, almost segregationist-type policies and stuff, and it's like, all right, we had a civil rights movement in the 60s, right? People actually died during that movement, you know, fighting for the rights that, that, that these communities got, that the minority communities got to be able to, to lead their own lives. And now here we have the party that's been suppressing that community since day one, 
coming around with a new version of the same old nonsense and just, you know, maligning everybody else they can with it because, you know, they think that if they call you a Nazi enough times or a racist enough times, maybe you'll sit down and be quiet and let them do what they want to do. But no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I want to. I got a couple of questions that I want to ask you about, just sure. off-topic stuff absolutely. here. So what's your opinion on the mask mandates? They're absolutely ridiculous. So I spent, you know, a good amount of time in Navy medicine. I've actually worked in, in areas where we've had some extremely nasty, you know, vectors, diseases rolling around. I've seen, you know, outbreaks of all kinds, you know, and honestly, the mask mandate to me blew my mind right, right away. So I remember when it first started, everybody's talking about the masks, whatever, like, well, Asia does it. I'm like, no, Asia doesn't do it. In Asia, what they do is if you're feeling sick, say you're home, you're feeling sick, whatever, but you have to go out. You have to go to the store to get groceries, whatever. The people who are feeling ill will put on a mask so that they're not coughing on others and spreading it to others. But the healthy people don't wear a mask. That's just not what happens. But here, you know, they, they kind of flipped that script and they twisted it the other way and they made it all about the masking. Masking to me is the most ridiculous way to do anything because, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, people don't understand infection control, right? So they're touching everything all day long and they're touching that mask. And what they're doing is creating a reservoir of bacteria, of virus, of everything else that they're now breathing in from this mask that they're constantly handling. They're not washing, they're not changing, they're not doing anything with. So it's like, all right, come on. What you about know? now, in, and I'm just going to go from topic to topic because I what want people want? to really, you know, see what your views are and, and who you are. I mean, I think that th this is what it's all about and that's why you wanted to come on the show. Sure. So what was your view of the 2016 election were you a trump supporter right from jump or did he grow on you or are you were you never a trump supporter are you going to vote for, you know did you vote for him in 2016 2020 and would you support him in 2024 the whole gamut so it surprised me when trump jumped into the uh into the ring i'd read some of his books prior to that you know the art of the deal and stuff just because i found i found it interesting never really watched the shows i'm not really a big like i don't watch a lot of tv really be honest with you i read mostly but um, I, I thought his book was fantastic. By the way, I read it too. It was amazing. But I was young. I was younger at the time. It was maybe whenever it first came out. I don't even know how old I was. I read it on the Long Island Railroad, going back and forth into the city. Yeah, yeah. And I actually loved it. It was a great book. It was yeah. very. It was just listen. His his writing style, you know, is very straightforward. It's very blunt. It's just like him. It's very blunt, very straightforward. It's like, look, this is what it is, and that's it. Yes. You know, I love that. I love that he was so straightforward. I love that he just made very clear, concise points and just got to the point, and that was it. So I loved it. It was a great book. So I was kind of surprised when he jumped in the race. Um, at the time, I ne wasn't necessarily committed to any of the candidates right away. Um, I thought it was interesting that he jumped in. And then as I heard of him speak more and more, you know, I kind of became a believer, right? And so as he, as he kind of worked his way through the primaries and everything like that, and he was speaking more and more, before he'd even actually won the primary, I was on board 100%. Because just the way he spoke, how clear he was, how plain he was, and just how very straightforward his policy stuff was, I was like, this guy's going to make it right. He's going to actually really legitimately do what he says he's going to do, and he's going to make it really work well. So I knew. I knew right away like that this was the guy. So I got on board with the Trump train almost immediately, stayed on board. I voted for him in both elections. Um, I'll vote for him again when he runs again. Will you... Is there somebody else, though, that you think would be better in 2024 other than Trump? Like, say, maybe Ron DeSantis, or maybe if it was Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo. Is the country... Does the country need Donald Trump again, or is there somebody else that could do a better job or could heal the nation, you know, and, and bring the country back together? Or is that over and that's never going to happen? You know, what's your thoughts on that? I don't think that necessarily anybody's going to heal the nation anytime soon, right? So I don't, I don't see it 
happening anytime in the next couple of years, right? I don't, I just don't see it. So I think the the, the extreme left has become so radicalized that they just are not going to let go of anything. So unless it's absolutely what they want, it's going to be just whatever the hell they want to do. So I think you're going to see these George Soros funded DAs not prosecuting rioters again. They're going to riot the spring again. They're going to burn shit. They're going to do what they do. And they're going to try and act as though this is somehow, you know, politically okay. Whereas I think we all know political violence is the most ridiculous thing in the world. The defunding the police was the most ridiculous. That was was just insane. It was insane. But this is what they wanted. They wanted mayhem. They wanted chaos because if they can create enough mayhem and chaos, they can overturn the system and put in place their own. That's the whole idea, right? But I mean, I love Ron DeSantis. I think he's absolutely amazing. I think he'd be a great candidate. So I'd be happy to see either of them run. Um, Obviously, I want, you know, Trump to have his second term. I feel like he was robbed in a lot of ways, honestly. Uh, the, the cop in me really feels like, you know what, he deserves that second shot, that second term, you know? Who would you want to see him be on the ticket with? Or who would you want on the ticket with him? Um, I would love to see a Trump-DeSantis ticket, but I know DeSantis is kind of focused on Florida right now, so I don't know that he's going to do that, but I think that will be an amazing ticket. Um, beyond him, I really like Mike Pompeo. Um, there's a few others I kind of look at. Ted Cruz I really liked as well. You know, there's a few out there that I think are really just truly solid people that I think could really do the job. Would you th- do you think there's a possibility that he would ask Mike Pence again? And is that something that you would support as a voter? Or is that something that you think is definitely not going to happen at all? I don't know if he will ask Mike Pence again, just because, I mean, if you look at what happened, you know, with the whole election thing and everything like that, and Mike Pence kind of, in, in, in a sense, left him hanging. You know, I don't. I don't know that Mike Pence could have definitely have stopped the so-called, you know, the. the yeah, I don't. I don't think that, that he he did that. I think he was being asked to jump off a bridge yes. when Mike Pence knew if I jump off this bridge, I'm going to die. Yeah, that's. I mean, it was kind of like a. So it was. I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't blame, blame Mike Pence at yeah, all. I don't either. See, I, I never really felt like it was. Um, I get. I get why people are frustrated with the guy. I get why people were upset. But I felt like that was more for the state legislatures to do than it was at that point. I I, I love I like Mike Pence. I love Mike Pence to be honest yeah. with you, and I'm and I'm a big um, supporter of him. I'm also a supporter of Ron DeSantis that you were saying. Yeah, he's a great guy. What's the reason, in your opinion, why the left hates Trump so much? Because he's like uh, you know he's the mirror held up to them to see the reality of their so-called policies and procedures, right? So he basically comes in. We have President Obama says, oh, we'll never get past, you know, 2% GDP. It just isn't going to happen. It's a fairy tale. And here comes Trump, and he blows it out of the water. You know, so he just kind of, like, destroys all the myths that they spent so long creating, you know. So they spent these decades just suppressing different communities and passing all these different policies and and, and infiltrating these schools and doing all these different things to kind of bring themselves to this point where they feel like they could really, truly take over the whole thing, right? Yet here comes this outlier, right? This guy who comes out of left field, comes out of nowhere. You know, they don't take him seriously. He runs his way through the primary. Now, all of a sudden, he's on a ticket. They still don't take him seriously. They're still pushing this Hillary forever thing. They've got all these polls that are skewed saying that he's never going to win. He's never going to win. But then he wins. You know, so he's like the boogeyman in their world. You know, he ripped away their their so-called reality. You know, he kind of pulled back the curtain and made them see the reality versus what they want to believe. And and for people that devoted to their own narrative, that that's the worst possible thing you could do. And what do you? What would you say is the biggest threat to America today? I think the radical politics. I think this this radical politics of the left is just absolutely. Some people would say China, and I think that is true. And maybe they have some, but I agree with you with that. Yeah, I think it's the radical politics from within. China, you know, China is definitely a threat, right? China has to be dealt with now, you know, like now. But China can be dealt with easily with economic sanctions and things of that nature, right? The trade wars that Trump started were very effective at putting them back in their place. 
China's not going to get into a ground war right now with us or anybody else. They're still trying to rebuild their navy. You know, they're still trying to rebuild their military forces. You know, they have a population decline, you know, that is self-engineered by them because they limited the birth so much. Now they have this huge gap in their population where they, the majority of their population is much, much older. So who are they sending to fight, you know? They're not going to sacrifice the few they have, you know? So I, I don't see China as the most, you know, prevalent threat right now. I think they need to be dealt with, but I think that right now the state of our politics, the state of our government is really the biggest threat. I think we need to rein in the bureaucracy, rein in these, these people who feel like they have ultimate power to do whatever the hell they want and actually put things back in the hands of the people where it belongs. What is your what is your opinion of transgenders, males, playing and participating in female sports? It should not happen, ever. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous, you know? Listen, I, I have no, you know, I don't really spend much time thinking about trans people, you know? Listen, if that's how they, they need to live, or that's how they feel they should live, or that's who they feel they are, that's their business. You know, it's freedom is about freedom, right? So I'm not trying to intrude upon how they feel about anything, that's their business. That being said, anatomically and physically, they grew and developed as a man, not as a woman. You know, wherever they feel on the inside, they grew and developed as a man. Physically, they are way, way, way higher on the scale than any woman is going to be. And it's just a completely lopsided thing, and it should just not be allowed to happen. And what would you rate Joe Biden as a president right now? We're talking like a scale of 1 to 10? Yeah. Uh, about negative 50. That bad. Uh, he's just horrible. Why do you think, though, he ran as a moderate, and how? Wh what do you think is actually going on in in the Joe Biden camp? If you had to, if you know, you're a detective, right? You're gonna do. Let's do some detective work here, right? Sounds good. Yep. Because Joe Biden today is not the Joe Biden maybe people thought he was running, and it's definitely not the Joe Biden of, say, maybe 25 years ago oh, no, that he made yet. himself out to be. Especially yeah, with no. the whole Clarence Thomas situation, yep. calling people racial war, racial jungle. Uh, yeah, the uh, super and, predator. Yeah, super predator, <laughs> things of that nature, yep. and how he was. What is it that is actually happening over at the White House? So, I think that, you know, in some sense, you know, Joe Biden is definitely not the one pulling the strings here, right? I think there's somebody behind the scenes with him, Susan Rice or whomever, you know, that's kind of standing there and whispering in his ear and kind of steering him where they want him. So, I don't I don't think what we're seeing is so much a Joe Biden presidency and his, his, his ability to do anything. Although, President Obama did call him out and say, don't underestimate how badly Joe can screw things up, right? I mean, that's, that's a, I think we all kind of knew that. But I think what we're seeing more now so than anything else is is his staff, right? So this is, I think, this group of people who are, are kind of propping him up, you know? I think the guy is definitely in some kind of cognitive decline, probably sundowners, you know? As he gets more tired, he gets less and less, you know, cognizant. So they're propping him up, and they're making all these decisions, and he's just kind of blindly signing off on it. He's just doing what they're telling him to do. He's just kind of being led by the nose, so to speak. So I think we're seeing this kind of mixed bag of people that are pushing their own agendas, so that's why you see such a disparate like reaction to everything, you know. So things that you would, I would normally look at and say, okay, this makes no sense. If he's for this, why is he doing this? It makes sense when I step back and say, okay, if he's not like the actual one, if he's just a figurehead, and we've got this group of people behind him pushing these things, now it makes sense to me why we're seeing such disparate like pressure on different things, and you know, it just just what a hot mess. Do you think Obama has anything to do with anything right now, or is he still is that? Is that something that just maybe is a man? I mean, I'm, I mean, the man. I'm sure he has some voice, right, in the party. Obviously, you know, he's he's, you know, kind of like their uh, their messiah, so to speak, almost. You know what I mean? They they. So I'm sure he has a voice in it. I'm sure his hand is in it somewhere. Um, 
I would think it's probably a range of uh, influence. So I think you're probably seeing a lot of George Soros influence, right? I mean, he funded everybody, right? All these DAs that all of a sudden get into office, and the next thing you know, now we have riots. Nobody's being prosecuted. San right? Francisco, Manhattan, Chicago, yep. all of them. Baltimore. Yeah, it was a targeted thing, you know. George Soros is a orders philosophy. You know, he's been pushing it for a very long time. He spent a lot of money to get there. He pushed in all these DAs, and as soon as these DAs get in office, then all of a sudden we see Antifa, then all of a sudden we see BLM, then all of a sudden we start seeing all these riots, and, you know, so I think it was a, a coordinated effort, you know? Let's get back to, before we close out here, let's get back to the local politics of what's going on here. Sure. Okay, so you're going to, you, you know, you're going after the second district here, you're going after yep, that second seat. district, yep. Tell us from here, you know, today up until November, what is it that you're going to be doing? How are you, how do you get things moving forward? What's the process here for you? The the majority of it is honestly just getting out and talking to people, you know, so we'll be canvassing, we'll be knocking on doors in different areas, talking to different people. I'm um, just kind of putting out what we're about and what we think and how we feel and everything else. And America First Republican, right? So it's pretty straightforward platform, pretty straightforward things. But just kind of giving them, I guess, in a sense, it's almost like you're selling your brand, right? You're telling them, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is how I am. I'm, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing, you know, about this that isn't obvious. And that's exactly how we plan to be in office. And how can people support you? How can people is, is can donate? You have you have a website, correct? We have a website up. We have a social media up. And what, what's that address, the website? It's uh, www. Uh, sorry. Mike Rakebrandt. For Congress.com. Oh, there we are. Yeah, it's right here. Mike Rake Brandt for Congress.com. There look, he is. Look, look at this. Look at that fat mug, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I lost a little bit of weight. I'm, I'm working my way down. So people can donate. People can contact you. People can volunteer. Absolutely. They can find out what we're about. The policies are all on there. If they have a question or concern, they can absolutely contact us. So now tell me a little, just real quick here, though, about the process. I mean, is there going to be an actual debate? Does that happen? How does that work out? Do you say, hey, listen, I want to debate you. Do you contact him? You know, how does that all work out? How does, you know, for people that don't know how local politics actually works, how does this whole thing, how does this process play out? Um, so far, they've pretty much ignored us. Um, we've reached out to, obviously, the GOP and everybody else, you know, and they mostly just pretend like we don't exist, I guess, right now, because they don't see it as, a, I guess, real yet, which I guess if I was in their position, maybe I wouldn't either. But, um... For debating and stuff like that, that's normally what we worked out for the two campaigns. So one would reach out to the other and say, "Let's set up this debate." And then if both parties agree, they would go. Do you uh, want to camp? Do you want to debate him? I'd happily debate him anytime. You know, anytime I debate him anytime. I have no problem with it. I have no question about it. I understand well enough what I'm talking about to be able to stand there and, and defend myself easily. And if people wanted to, you know, follow you on social media, how would they be able to do that? Um, Facebook, Twitter, we're on Facebook. It's MikeRakeBrandForCongress.com. If you go to the Facebook page and click that follow, like, and follow link, you know, you can follow us there. We're putting most, a lot of postings up there. So um, a lot of those posts are me personally actually putting them up, talking about different, like, I'll post articles and then kind of give my breakdown or my interpretation or my thoughts on it. You don't have a ghostwriter. You're doing, whatever you see was what you get. You're not Joe Biden? It's completely grassroots. There's no, uh, there's no ghostwriter. Yeah, it's, it's so crazy. You know, th and that was the difference, too, and, and, when you saw Trump, you know, tweeting, you knew that was Trump. 
right? Yeah, and it's 100%. and whether or not you, you agreed with his tweets or not, but you knew that it was him and he was the president of the United States in comparison yeah. to everything that you see Joe Biden, any tweet that you see from him, you know that he's not sitting there in the Oval Office yeah. bringing out his iPhone and or Android or whatever it may be <laughs> and writing any tweets. No, I think he's sitting there eating a bowl of ice cream and somebody else is banging one out for him. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that, that's what I'm saying. Um, but listen, I, I really appreciate you coming on here. You know, I and, appreciate and, you guys. And, and I really appreciate that you... You know, your politics, your views. I hope that you're successful. What happens, though, real quick, what happens if you do get elected? Is that now you can't be a detective anymore? Do you have to retire? How does that work out? Yeah, so I'd actually take another retirement from the MIPD. Um, so let, let, let's just let's, let, let's just think about that for a second. Here you are. Mm-hmm. You're willing to change Amer- for America to make you have so much strong beliefs yeah. in what's going on and, and your love for America that you're willing to put to bed a career that you've been dreaming about your whole entire life in order to serve America? So I served the uh, military, right? I served in the department. I've lost a lot of friends along the way, overseas, you know, a lot of guys, unfortunately, um, in the department, a lot of the cops get killed. And, you know, you get the shirt, I guess, right? Live a life worthy of their sacrifice. So for me, it's always ever been a mandate, right? I'm going to do the absolute best I can to help as many people as I can because it's what should be done for them, right? I don't want to, I don't want their lives to be wasted in vain, right? And I feel like if I don't do this and this country is allowed to go the direction it's going, that every sacrifice that, that was made by them is going to be thrown away. It's going to be for nothing. And I can't, I just can't sit back and watch that happen. Well, so. I'm pulling for you. I, I wish you nothing but the best. And if any time that you want to come back on here, the door is always open for you. Joe, I really appreciate it, man. You guys are awesome. Thank yeah, you so much, You got man. it, brother. Thank you. All right. Mike Wake Brent for Congress right here on Long Island. And if you get a chance, go over to our website, thejoecozoshow.com. Make sure you also, mypillow.com. Use promo code TJCS. We have merchandise on thejoecozoshow.com. And with that being said, Mike Wake Brent, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate you. You got it, brother. Be well. You too. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, but that wraps it up for another edition of the Joe Cozo Show. <laughs>